Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 6, beginning in verse 15 and reading through verse 23. Once again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. Saul of Tarsus was a scholar of the First Order, a student of famed Jewish theologian Gamaliel, Saul knew the Scriptures as well as anyone of his time. If the Jerusalem Gazette had run an article on the most promising young theologians of their day, Saul's name would have definitely been on the list, perhaps even at the top. What is remarkable is that for all his theological education, it turns out that he was completely wrong. The things that he was espousing before he met Christ were completely off the mark. Saul was thoroughly convinced that the law of God and one's adherence to it, one's reverence for it, was critical for one's hope of salvation. Like his neighbors, he was convinced that God had bestowed a great privilege upon the descendants of Abraham and that because of their biological connection to the father of their faith, and because they had been named as the keepers of God's law, and because they bore the sign of the covenant, anyone who pointed to a different way was misguided and wrong, and in some cases was dangerous. And for that reason, the followers of this Nazarene carpenter who ended up crucified were considered national agitators that needed to be stopped 
And so with great religious fervor, Saul began to track them down to persecute them and to arrest them for the sake of Yahweh. What a frightening surprise it must have been for him that day on the road to Damascus when the risen Christ confronted him. Blazing in glory so brilliant it blinded this self-assured zealot. But what may have frightened him the more was to then hear the thunderous voice of the Son of God demanding that Saul give an account of himself. And we can only imagine what thoughts were racing through his mind as he attempted to process what was happening, for it surely did not compute. All the while, he must have been weighing the gravity of what he had done, having obviously offended this glorified Jesus now before him, all the while he supposed that he had been defending the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everything that he had believed was now called into question. And it took something that dramatic to stop Saul in his tracks and to consider carefully the Scriptures once again. And over the next several years, he came to realize that what he had been reading in the Scriptures was in fact the inspired Word of God, but that to read them rightly requires the lens of the incarnated Son of God. It requires the Holy Spirit lifting the veil from one's mind in order to rightly perceive God's revelation. And what Paul learned in that time of prayerful study and reflection and contemplation is what we find so elegantly displayed in this letter to the Romans. Over these last few weeks, we have been intrigued by Paul's forceful argument that our salvation is not by our obedience to the law, but it is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To all those who comprehend that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through Him, what they experience first is the knowledge that God has established peace with them through Jesus Christ. Whereas, before we received God's atoning work in Christ, we were His enemies, now, because of Jesus' life, and death and resurrection and ascension, God has reconciled us to Himself. Paul speaks about this reconciliation that God has worked in several of His epistles. Second Corinthians 5, Ephesians 2, Colossians 1 are all places where Paul emphasizes this reconciliation that has taken place through the cross of Jesus. But that alienation from God was the past reality for all those who are now in Christ. Now that peace has been established, we have a new position, a new reality. Our old reality, Paul describes as the life that we had in Adam. But the new reality he describes as the life we have in Christ. We have been united with Christ, he says, placed in Him such that all that has happened to Christ can be rightly expressed as having happened to us. When Christ died to sin, because we were in Him, we too died to sin. 
when Christ was raised from the dead, because we were in Him, we too were raised to new life. When Christ ascended to the heavenly places, because we were in Him, we too ascended to the heavenly places. And these are just some of the aspects of the new reality that we now find ourselves in if we have placed our full trust and faith in Jesus Christ. But then Paul begins to respond to the questions that inevitably arise from those in the peanut gallery who are skeptical of this path to salvation that seems almost too easy. And as we noted last week, there were folks who were taking Paul's statement where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, and pushing it to its illogical limit, sarcastically making the case for antinomianism or anti-law. In other words, if God's grace was put on full display because of our sinning, why would we not keep on sinning just so God could continue to shower His grace upon us and God would be glorified all the more? And Paul dealt very decisively with that question in the first half of this chapter 6. And his answer was that the death that Christ died, he died to sin. In other words, the death of Christ was not only a propitiation for our sin, that he might absorb all the wrath and punishment that should have been ours, but that his death also had the added benefit of breaking the overwhelming power of sin in those for whom he died. And this is why Paul asks the question there halfway through this chapter, how can we who died to sin still live in it? But then he begins to address a similar but different question in the passage that is before us today. He asks, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Now this sounds the same, but it's really quite different. The question is essentially this. If we are now under grace and we're no longer under the law, then what difference does it make if we sin or not? Bible commentator Leon Morris says the Christian can never say sin does not matter. It will all be the same in the end. For he says, as Emil Bruner puts it, freedom from the law does not mean freedom from God, but freedom for God. And to make his point, the apostle offers his readers an illustration that would have been a part of their common life. As we have said before, indentured servitude was a means which individuals utilized every now and then to pay off a great debt. And this is what Paul has in mind when he says, Do do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And so his point is that if you're a follower of Christ, and you are wondering whether sin can simply be disregarded as though it is no longer pertinent, you need to think again. Just because we are under grace does not mean that we can ignore sin. It it isn't that it evaporated into thin air where we're concerned. Sin is still an issue for believers, and the way to address sin is by understanding it 
as a slave master. If we give ourselves over to sin, if we treat sin as though it is without any effect in us, as though we are covered in a kind of spiritual Teflon and sin will not stick to us, we will soon learn that's not the case and it will be detrimental to us. And this is what Paul appears to be addressing in his first letter to the Corinthians when he is chastising them about their cavalier approach to the Lord's table. You see, there were apparently some of them who had this attitude towards sin. They were wallowing in it, not living penitent lives. And so they were eating and drinking condemnation unto themselves by making a mockery of the sacrament that had been designed to impress upon all believers the great sacrifice that had been made for their salvation. And as a result, Paul declares to them, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But then he goes on to say, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, there were those in Corinth who seemingly had this attitude. If we're now under grace and we're no longer under law, then what difference does it make if we sin or not? And Paul was making the point with them that when believers give themselves over to sin, they will reap what they sow. Not that they will lose their salvation, but the Lord will discipline those who are His because this is what? a loving father will do. He will discipline a child so as to correct sinful behavior. And if repentance does not come by means of the truth of God's Word, the Lord will employ other means of discipline. And if repentance still does not come, the Lord may call them home. Now we need to notice that Paul is recognizing that since we have been born from above that our wills have undergone a transformation such that we have a new ability or capacity that we did not formerly possess. This is an aspect of the new creation that he speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5. We now have an ability to choose to either present ourselves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. That is to say that we now have the capacity to resist sin's temptations and to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence in our hearts. This is the whole purpose of Christ's death unto sin and our being in Christ. By our union with Christ, we are now participants in this sanctification process that's taking place in us. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, something has changed in every single believer. So thanks be to God. The Roman believers once looked exactly like their Roman neighbors enjoying the idol-worshiping debauchery of their day, giving themselves over to impurity and lawlessness, which in turn led to even more lawlessness. 
This is the pernicious quality that is embedded in ungodliness and lawlessness. Once is never enough. One act of sin leads to another act of sin until that sin is unsatisfying and so it leads to an even greater sin, all searching for a level of satisfaction that will never come. In his novel, A Month of Sundays, John Updike has one of the characters in the story declare, deceit has done you in. That's the trick about sin. It does in the doer. But thanks be to God. The Spirit of God brought the Gospel to the ears of these Roman disciples. And suddenly, much like Saul on the road to Damascus, they were brought up short as the One who is the way, the truth, and the life took hold of them and opened their eyes to see and their ears to hear the truth about their spiritual condition. They came to realize that they were bound for an eternal death because of their sin, but that God, out of His grace for them, sent them a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And their heart, their internal decision-making center, their will was set free from the power of sin and they were given a new master. Whereas in the past they gave themselves over to impurity and to lawlessness, now someone was at work in them to will and to work for His good pleasure, freeing them up to present themselves to Christ the Lord. The lifestyle of sin that once came so naturally to us before our justification begins now to experience the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit who woos us into deeper fellowship with Christ. And the things that we once did without ever questioning it now has a foreign flavor to it and to such that we begin to feel uncomfortable if we continue in the practice of sin. I would imagine that all of us have had that sensation when we knew that something we were doing was not exactly right. That stirring of our conscience such that, that we take notice of it is important for believers to heed for the new life that has begun to take root in us is effectively at work taking notice of sinful behavior that is not in our best interest, nor in the best interest of the things of the Lord. Perhaps it involved stretching the truth just a bit to inflate our stature in the eyes of someone else, someone we were hoping to impress perhaps. And as soon as the lie slipped past our lips, we found ourselves thinking, now, why did I phrase it like that? I know that's not the way it was exactly. Whatever possessed me to embellish that story, let me correct that immediately and be perfectly truthful so as not to head down that path. Now, our old nature would have us simply ignore that, reasoning that it wasn't really that bad of a lie. I mean, what's, what's a little white lie among friends. We all do it. But you see, this is the very thing that Paul is warning us about when he says in verse 19 that lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. For when we grow complacent in our attitude towards sin and instead of dealing with it 
through genuine repentance, we prefer to shrug it off as some innocuous, harmless thing. It has now become just a little bit easier to ignore it the next time. But with each successive lie, we are in reality selling a little bit of ourselves back to our old master who enslaved us in ways that brought hopelessness and despair. And after a while, the little white lies just become plain old lies. And eventually it leads to a time when people will completely disregard whatever we say, for they will declare behind our backs, don't listen to him, he's a liar. The Apostle John, as I believe we spoke of last week, says, if we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is how the growing Christian deals with sin. We bring it before God's throne of grace. Remember, we're now at peace with God. His Son has died for us While we were yet sinners, we've been regenerated to new life. And so the fear we once had in facing God is gone. He's no longer our adversary. He's our advocate. And so we go to God in prayer declaring that we have done wrong. That we have offended the Lord. And we are admitting that this behavior is damaging to our spiritual well-being. And we renounce it and we turn away from it. For we do not want it to be a part of us any longer. We seek God's sanctifying power to cleanse us from it and to strengthen us to resist its temptation going forward. And when that practice of confession and repentance begins to be the norm for us, instead of creatively giving sin a different name in order to soften our guilt and shame, we will begin to discover that ever so clearly the whole hold that particular sin has upon us weakens more and more. The story is told of a minister in the early 1900s who often spoke on the subject of sin and he minced no words. He defined sin as that abominable thing that God hates. And one day a leader in his congregation came to him to urge him to cease using the ugly word sin, for he was concerned that the young people of their congregation would be more likely to do it, to indulge in it. And he urged him to call it something else. Errors that we make, mistakes that we commit, anything but sin. And the minister said, I understand what you mean, as he made his way to the cabinet where he found a bottle of rat poison and he pointed to the bright red label that adorned the bottle with its skull and crossbones surrounding the deadly ingredient and he asked the man would you also suggest a new label here such as wintergreen for the more harmless the name the more dangerous the dose will be And this is the problem when we mislabel sin. It doesn't make the spiritual condition of those who are lost in sin any better. It actually misleads them into thinking that their condition is really not all that bad. 
It leads them into ever-increasing danger such that they may never recognize the dreadful condition that they face. So, as to the question before us now, if we're under grace and we're no longer under the law, then what difference does it make if we sin or not? The answer lies in the essence of sin itself. Sin is that abominable thing that God hates. And it is injurious to our spiritual lives, which is why Paul so forcefully proclaims, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. The truth of what Christ has done on our behalf needs to take root in our thinking such that we realize that He has broken the power of sin and we have been set free to live in obedience. He says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The difference between being enslaved to sin or being enslaved to righteousness is set forth in the last verse of this chapter. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beloved, God is well aware of the world's awful predicament, which is why He offers such a gracious solution. It is a free gift to anyone who will receive it by faith. You cannot negotiate for it. You, you either accept it on God's terms or not at all. You cannot influence God over it. You can't buy God off or convince Him that somehow all of this eternal damnation stuff should not apply to you. What awaits all those who are slaves to sin is death. But God offers life to those who will receive His Christ and the offer of His atoning work by faith. And then they will begin to enjoy the new life that only He can provide. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment today that we might pray together.